The Lord said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Then we skip ahead to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Or, uh, Kohelet is the name of the narrator, usually translated as teacher, and, and kind of probably better translated as cranky philosopher. <laughs> yeah. He says, I hated life. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. (laughs) Well, on that cheery note, we... (laughs) We jump into a sermon on, as you see titled here, the frustration of work. It's a, it's a topic that I mean, needs no introduction. The abiding frustration and fruitlessness of work is something we all experience. Every one of us enters into our, our career path expecting that we're going to make a change. That we're going to have some lasting impact on the field that we go into. Every one of us aspires to do our work at a sufficiently high level of skill and quality and that that will be noticed by other people. Every one of us aspires to make a real contribution, be it wherever we're at, in our company, in the lives of our patients, in our school, in our home. But the sad fact is 99% of us end up achieving far less, far less than we originally envisioned ourselves of accomplishing. I mean, isn't that true of you? Like when you think back, if you're retired, did you really have the impact on your company that, that you hoped for? If you're a teacher, uh, did you have the, the transforming effect in your students' lives that you expected to have on, on day one of your teaching career? Did that really happen? Maybe you're uh, a, a man in management, you're an administrator. Was your leadership 
effective and as well-received as you anticipated it would be? If you're an engineer, did you innovate the way that you expected to? Did you introduce you know, new efficiencies into your company. I mean, I, I know that, like I could speak on a personal level, in church work, I really did expect that I would see m- more positive change in the lives of people than th- thus far I've experienced in my 13 years. I think that, isn't that true of, of most of us? That's what we're talking about when we, we talk about work on this side of Eden. All of us labor, as you know, in a fallen world. All of us labor in a place where there are thorns and thistles and sweat and toil. And some of it, a lot of it, is our own lack of ability. <laughs> you know, we end up not being nearly as proficient at our jobs as we, we anticipated, we aspired to be. Some of it's our own lack of ability, and some of it is the environment we find ourselves in. It seems like the evil forces of of office politics and and petty jealousies all conspire to neutralize the effect that that we anticipated with our work. So at the beginning of the week, I thought I was going to preach a sermon. This This would be good. I would list for you all of the different ways that toil and thorns and thistles and sweat kind of infiltrate into our, our work week and into our labors. And then I thought, why would I do that? <laughs> you already know. You, I, you experience that every day. Instead of telling you kind of the bad news that you already know, instead I want to ask this question. I think it's a much more interesting and important question. And that is, how do we keep from having those things crush us, plunge us into the cynicism and despair that's articulated here in the book of Ecclesiastes. How do we keep from letting that happen to us? All right, you want to try that? Number one, the way that we keep from being crushed by the toils and the thorns and the thistles is by treasuring ever so deeply in our hearts, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, be always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's probably the best thing I can give you. The number, how we keep from being crushed is knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's remarkable that Paul puts that statement at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What's the 1 Corinthians 15 about? It's the resurrection chapter. You think that the conclusion he would reach at the end of the resurrection chapter is, yeah, don't worry too much about your work. Because after all, you're going to be resurrected and You'll fly away, oh glory, one of these days. But instead, he says, actually, um, not a single bit of your work is is a waste of time and effort, at least not to Jesus. Because all of it is accomplishing Jesus' purposes. You may have heard the the name of this philosopher, Alistair McIntyre. In his book, After Virtue, he argues that in order to determine whether or not something is good or bad, you first have to understand its functional purpose. 
He uses the simple example of a watch. How can you tell if a watch is good or bad? Well, you have to know what it's made for. If, if you get some Neanderthal who starts to you know, take his Rolex and try to bang a nail into a board with his watch, and then after, you know, afterwards it breaks, you can't call that a defective watch now, can you? Because you don't, the, the person is out of touch with its functional purpose. What then is the functional purpose of our work? What we have been saying over the last several weeks is one of the functional purposes of our work is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Wherever God has placed you, whatever type of work you are in, artist, entrepreneur, paralegal, nurse, scientist, pastor, janitor, banker, journalist, educator, counselor, wherever it is, the principal way that you love your neighbor as yourself is by doing that job remarkably well. <laughs> and, and God says that when you do so, you do it unto me. Paul even says in the book of Ephesians, when he's writing to Christian slaves, he says, when you serve your masters well and you do so faithfully, he says, you are actually serving your, your Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And none of that labor in the Lord is in vain. So when you find yourself uh, feeling like the author of Ecclesiastes, that everything is meaningless, that nothing changes, that who cares, don't get your hopes up, when you find yourself plunging into cynicism and self-pity, remember that nothing, nothing that you do for the Lord's sake in love of neighbor is in vain. So that's number one. Number two, I believe that in Genesis 1, 1, 2, and 3, there are many extended metaphors that end up kind of, how do I put it? Um, Simple statements in those chapters that have abiding metaphorical significance into the future. In our passage today, there are three, and I think one of the ways we... We just have to keep all three in mind. So the first is the metaphor of garden. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's significant that God put Adam and Eve in a garden. He didn't put them, put them in a metropolis. He didn't put them in an already constructed and completed city. Because a garden, a city has kind of tapped out all of its, all of its original potential, kind of. But a garden, there's a tremendous amount of potential underneath the soil. And the job of the gardener is obviously to, you know, to tap into and release the latent potency of, of the natural resources and cultivate something from that. You know, grow some wheat. And then once you grow the wheat, harvest the wheat, grind the wheat, combine the wheat with yeast and water and stir it all up and bake it. And you, you come up with something even more wonderfully cultivated, which we call bread. So there's a sense that gardening is a metaphor I hope you remember this part. A metaphor for all of the labor that we undertake in the, in the world. That's, okay, we get that. The second one is obvious in this sermon, and that is toil, thorns, sweat of your brow, thistles. Why is the ground so hard? Why it's, it's cursed? What's the metaphorical significance of that? It's all human work and effort will be marked by frustration and lack of fulfillment. And we see that all the time. All of our work will be marked by frustration 
and lack of, of fulfillment. Some of that is our work environment we already talked about. Some of that is our own lack of ability. And some of it is actually system inequalities, socioeconomic breakdowns. I have in my hand a little show-and-tell moment in the sermon. (laughs) This is a a dollar from Zimbabwe. It was printed in 2005, the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. I promise to pay to the bearer on demand. This is official currency. $100 trillion from the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. This is, this is legit. This is, this is the real deal. They inflated their currency. Like their, their economy was so bankrupt, so corrupt, that like 100 US dollars literally was the equivalent of 100 trillion Zimbabwean dollars in 2005. And then in 2007, the Zimbabwean government just comes along and says, eh, Zimbabwean dollars, we don't want those anymore. They're worth nothing. And we're, we're, they established a brand new currency. Is that part of the, the curse on the ground, the, the thorns and thistles, the infiltration of sin into the world and marketplace? Of, yes, it, it absolutely is. Um, but there's a third one that you have to see in this passage, and it's in verse 18, chapter 3 of Genesis 3, 18. Want to look there with me? God says that the ground will produce, the ground will produce thorns and thistles for you. What's the next phrase there? And you will eat the plants of the field. The ground will produce thorns and thistles for you, but you will eat the plants of the field. Like, just a couple of hours after they get cast out of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and their children still have bread on the table afterwards. There's there's a mercy that, that is even, that's still in the middle of the curse. And that mercy is that though, Adam's labor is cursed and frustrating. Nevertheless, it still provides some fruitfulness. I think that's metaphorically significant. I mean, whatever your, your job is, especially if you feel really burdened under frustrating work environment and circumstances, can't you see, even in the worst job that you've ever worked, can't you see how God ended up still providing for you? Still bringing something fruitful? Even if it was a salad, <laughs> plants of the field. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, actually sometimes, work is wonderfully fulfilling. There are some days you come home from the office and you are like, yes, I did something. I, nothing is more satisfying than a sense that through your work, you, you did make an impact, at least for 20 Four hours. I had an instance. I, I usually don't feel like I make much of an impact when I do counseling. Uh, I, I, don't, I feel just like an inept counselor. But I had a moment this week where somebody was doing a little bit of that, and they replied, they said, this was so helpful. And I was like, yes, that's what I needed on my Friday, that, that moment of fulfillment. Really, what work is is this dual tension between abject, complete frustration and moments of surprising fulfillment. And moments where, man, I get to eat of the 
the uh, plants of the field kind of moments. And we're, we're constantly navigating the, the twin tensions. Um, so yes, keep your eyes open to the grace of God in the middle, midst of the thorns and thistles and hard, cursed land. God has not treated us as our sins deserve. Psalm 37, verse 25, the psalmist says, When I was young, I'm sorry, I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread, begging for bread. God has not treated us as our sins deserve. Then number three. Before I give you number three, let me give you a little case study that I came across this week. It's a case study involving Microsoft. I didn't know this. In December of the year 2000, Microsoft was the world's most valuable company. Its market cap was valued at $510 billion. $510 billion. But over the next 10 years, they call it Microsoft's lost decade. From 2000 to 2010, Apple ends up zooming right past them. Google starts up and zooms right past them. Apple's stock over that decade-long period ends up not doubling or tripling, but it multiplies by 20. And in the same time, Microsoft's stock, at least so I read, was stuck at about $30 a share for the, for the entire time. And, I mean, Microsoft, at the top of the tech industry, kind of becomes a, a technological afterthought by 2010. I know some people say they're coming back now, but... How did it happen? What went wrong? Business analysts have gone through and interviewed plenty of prior executives at Microsoft. They have waded through the mountain of internal Microsoft documents, and this is what they've concluded. They've concluded that the company's, the corporate culture was poisoned by this this thing called stack ranking. What is stack ranking? Managers would evaluate everybody on their team twice a year, and then they would assign a ranking. So 20% of you are going to be ranked as the top performers on my team. 70% of you are going to be average-ish, kind of average, mediocre. And 10% of you are my poor performers. The it was a little more complicated than that, but they basically had strict percentages that these managers who are doing the evaluations that they had to put you in. So if you were on a team of 10 people, no matter how well you performed, you, you know going in that two people are going to get a great review, seven people are going to get mediocre reviews, and one's going to get a terrible review and probably get fired. And all of your bonuses, all of your um, promotions are, are tied to whatever percentage you fell in, what it ends up doing is, well, you, you can guess, <laughs> Staffs, uh, staffers are rewarded not simply for performing well, but for making sure everybody else performs terribly. <laughs> Quote, one of the most valuable things, said one of the uh, uh, former employees, one of the most valuable things I learned was to give the appearance of being courteous to my team members while withholding just enough information from my colleagues to ensure that they didn't get ahead of me. In order to stay out of the bottom of the bucket, would you really want to get on a team with 
with some great programmers? Eh, no. No? Because those guys are going to be ranked one and two, and, and you're, you're kind of... So instead of creating this environment where we're innovating together, there was a complete loss of, of purpose. There was a complete loss of what we are here to do. Apple and Google are innovating like crazy, and we are sabotaging each other's projects and engaging, engaging in knife fights with each other. I, I, when I came across that case study, I thought that is a microcosm of sin's effect in, I think, pretty much all of our, our, our work environments, our marketplaces. The petty jealousies, the lack of collaboration, the loss of perspective, the unhealthy competition, um, it's a microcosm of sin's effect, which leads me to number three. I really believe... I truly believe it's nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ which can keep us from like, that kind of unhealthy comparison with each other. The gospel is what gives us an inner ballast to float on the waters of God's grace and not on the waters of our own self-achievement. The gospel tells me that I'm... I'm somebody not because I outperformed my coworkers. I'm somebody because I was a nobody who was obviously loved an incredible amount. I'm a somebody because of grace. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by more than 500 followers, most of whom are still alive. Not really, not anymore, but in Paul's day, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me. And it's, it's a deep belief that, that is, in that ultimate reality is what, is what keeps us from defining ourselves over and against each other, or defining ourselves by our work. At the end of the day, I am not a pastor. I am a Christian who does pastoring. Um, you're not a plumber. I am. No, you're not. No, you're, you're, you're a Christian, the son of the king, uh, who, who does plumbing. You're a, you're a, you're a mother you're a Christian who does mothering. You are, we, I, I don't know, I'm probably not getting it across, but you have to refuse to conflate your identity with, with what you do or, or how well you perform or how much better you're performing than the guy next to you. And it's very difficult to do that because I, you, you surely recognize that for us as adults, our work environment is really the only place left in the world where we still get a grade. It is the only place where we get brownie points, we get a medal and blue ribbon. Our work is the only place we still get graded and evaluated. I mean, nobody walks into your house and grades you on how good of a parent you are, but even if you're a fourth grade teacher, your goal is to make sure your lines are straighter than the other fourth grade teachers and your test scores are better than the other fourth grade classes because somebody's going to be grading you 
you're going to be evaluated. I believe that faith is what gives us an inner ballast to to float, not based upon our own self-achievement, but but on what Christ has achieved for us. So let me finish here. I want to tell you a little anecdotal story. Completely ordinary story. I mean, this isn't the best sermon illustration kind of story. It doesn't have fireworks, and, but it's ordinary. It's wonderfully ordinary. G.K. Chesterton, you remember him? He said that the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man, an ordinary wife, and his ordinary kids. <laughs> Well, this is one of those stories. It's a story of a Christian hotel worker. My experience of work has definitely included more than a few moments of fruitlessness and frustration. So the hotel I work at, well, it has recently gone through a massive leadership change. There's only one manager who still works at the hotel from when I began, and nobody here seems to know what they're doing anymore. There's a... Chaos and leadership. So I began working a day shift last year. And when I started, I thought, oh, there are things I want to improve. Make make a bunch of much-needed changes to the position I've inherited. Well, over the last few months, I've only been able to make three or four minor changes. And even those kind of get bottlenecked in, in and up through the management like everything has to be approved by a different manager. And the manager frequently waits for weeks or months to respond. It's easy for me to believe that I can do better than them. I can do a better job than that. Working in a hotel, as you might imagine, means often dealing with people who have a strong sense of entitlement and who are deliberately rude to the staff. Oh, the stories I could tell you of the the demeaning attitudes which are expressed towards those of us who work in this industry. And so I think to myself, I'm better than this. I can accomplish more than this. Why do I have this terrible, frustrating, fruitless, good-for-nothing, meaningless job? He didn't say that, but... Well, because God has placed me here. God has called me here. And if I can look past all of the thorns... And the frustrations, I, I can see places where, where I should plant seed. I can see a group of coworkers who are really built up when I remember their names and their spouses' names and ask them about their children and talk to them about their families. I, I see God can be glorified when, when I approach my guests as, as people who deserve the very best of hospitality in spite of, of how they treat their hosts. In my industry, I have the privilege of truly welcoming people into my house, kind of like Abraham did when he welcomed the angels into his tent. I get to show them the very best of Christian hospitality. I guess what I've come to realize over time is most of my problems are because I think things should be a certain way, and usually that way is a thornless thistleless way, or it's a way where I'm the one who's fixing all of this. I can do this better than my coworkers. And what God has challenged me to realize is, is that I'm a Christian who works in the hotel industry. And my significance is, is not that I can do things better than the next, 
but because my life is hidden in Jesus Christ. Did I expect this to be my career when I started out? Uh, No. I thought, did I think that I would do more and be better than this? Yeah. But I don't have to prove myself to anybody, my parents, my friends, my 20-year high school reunion. I don't have to do any of that because the gospel is the gospel is true, and thus I can be patient when things are inevitably frustrate me, and I can show people the love of Christ. Maybe you, you're here this morning, and you're feeling particularly burdened by the thorns and the thistles and the cursed ground and the toil and the sweat. That was me for the better part of, of this week. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're surprised by the disparity between what you aspire to accomplish in your vocation and, uh, and what you've actually accomplished, it's been pretty humbling. Maybe you're even teetering on the precipice of plunging into cynicism and self-pity like the author of Ecclesiastes. But my word to you, it's, it's a good word. It's go back to Jesus. Go back to Jesus. Let your thorns remind you of those that pricked his brow. Let your sweat. Remind you of the sweat that was mingled with blood as it fell to the earth. Let your thistles point you to the nails that were driven into his hand. When our work is hard and frustrating, as it inevitably is, to work is to be frustrated, at least on this moment, on this Sunday, and here at the table, remember, Jesus has labored on your behalf, and therefore, none of your labors are in vain. Okay? Amen.